Hey, and welcome back to Dorm Room History. I'm your host, Eric Andreessen, and today is episode six. Making good progress. But before I get any further, let me say I want to thank my sponsor, Quavos. The egg white chip that's high in protein has keto options with three different flavors. Go to their website, Quavos.com, Q-U-E-V-O-S dot C-O-M, and guess what? You can buy yourself some Quavos today. And if you're in the Chicagoland area, they'll be available in Whole Foods very soon, but also available in the potash markets as well. Now, six episodes since, what, late April, early May? Dan Carlin has not released an episode since January 12th, so maybe I've done something right, but I don't know. Maybe I haven't. Though I'm not going to trash the master. His episodes are of unbelievable quality, and they are also four hours long, mind you. But I think we have also surpassed four hours of content. So for all my longtime listeners, thank you for sticking with me. And today is episode six in total, but this is the third part of our second series, Patriot Rising. So without further ado, episode three of Patriot Rising. This is Dorm Room History, the world's greatest history told from the worst of dorm rooms. So, at the end of episode two, we left off right after George Washington's victory at Trenton. And I want to make sure before we continue that I clarify again how bad things were really going for the Continental Army and the Revolution before that battle. Washington had put his army on the field to face the British in New York, and it was an abysmal failure. He not only risked himself to a naval assault, he put his army against a better military force that pushed them all the way up. And yes, I did not give the American army enough credit. They did make unbelievable retreating stands at Harlem Heights that did maybe salvage their escape, but at the same time, the British also missed their opportunity to pounce. And I wanted to clarify again also before we continue that the Declaration of Independence had already been signed. We sort of, again, think that the Declaration was the, we started the country, it's, we did it, we celebrate it every year. But what it really was, was should really only be viewed as this is the first time that the revolution had a clear and written out goal. And I mean, literally, their goal had not been very clear. Was it full independence? You know, the Olive Branch petition, what are we really doing? Regardless, so back to where we left off. After the surprise victory at Trenton, the American mood changed in seemingly an instant. From seemingly a truly lackluster affair that this war was becoming, you know, after the British withdrawal of Boston, the victory at Trenton showed the revolutionists and the colonists that this revolution was not going to be a quick defeat, that it might have looked like it was going to be. So far, it really feels like a junior varsity team playing a friendly match against a professional team. You know what, let's compare it to American football because, well, let's stick to something American. Let's stay in the American mood. Regardless of what sport I'm about to pick, the British were just better. Though the Americans started this proverbial game with a you know, few good plays, let's say it's American football. The Americans start the game with a few good plays, but no actual points are put on the board. But New York and New Jersey and all those battles where the Americans start to slip up and fall behind... The Americans just get worked and outplayed by the British. But Trenton, now Trenton for me at least, was the time the Americans finally hit the other team in the mouth. If the Americans were on defense, let's say, which they literally were, so the Americans are on defense, they just hit the British receiver in the middle of the field during a long British drive, causing a fumble and recovered the fumble. 
but then turn around and Washington goes and seizes Princeton shortly after uh, in January of 1777. And a whole new war has happened. And this seizure of Princeton is mainly like the offense hitting a 25-yard pass after the turnover. So maybe you might say, oh, well, the turnover was a fluke. The offense just got moving. Maybe the fluke turnover was no fluke. But the sudden jolt of confidence that the revolutionists feel after Trenton, whether it was actually based on stats or the actual logical outlook of things, was unbelievably powerful nonetheless. And the British knew it too. This realization of the British that the Americans were again ginned up, now maybe more than ever, is encapsulated by a quote by a British man named Ambrose Searle. As it stated in his diary that he was, quote, exceedingly concerned on the public account, as it will tend to revive the drooping spirits of the rebels and increase their force, prolonging a war that I thought might soon end, end quote. The revolution was being fueled by front runners, really, let's just be blunt, and they were joining whenever the cause seemed anything better than a death sentence. While there were a few, and we like to remember the revolution as something only fought and propagated by people who all worked under the liberty or death mantra, and they were hardcore revolutionists and everyone truly believed it, but while a lot of Americans, all with similar experiences and probably views to some degree, were sympathetic to the cause, not all were willing to leave their homes, their families, their jobs, all for a potentially automatic death sentence. You know, whether they're killed in combat's one thing, or if they lose and they're captured, they're probably going to be hung uh, for being traitors to the crown. So not a lot of Americans actually want to get behind that. Remember, they've had two issues now with people's enlistment ending. But Trenton is free recruitment propaganda for the American force. So Trenton is free propaganda for the recruitment agencies of the Continental Army. Things are looking pretty bad. No one wants to join. Then Washington crosses the Delaware, takes Trenton, and boom, it's a new war in the eyes of the colonists. But then Princeton too, boom, oh, it's really a new war. And I think a quote by Nicholas Cresswell, an Englishman who was in Virginia at the time serving a parole, remarked in his diary um, from the British side of what he was seeing. Quote, Monday, January 6th, 1777. Now remember, events took a while to spread. So while Trenton might have happened on December 26th, it takes a little bit for the news to spread. Nevertheless, quote, news that Washington had taken 760 Hessian prisoners at Trenton in the Jerseys. Hope it is a lie. He goes on to say, Tuesday, January 7th, the news is confirmed. The minds of the people are much altered. A few days ago, they had given up the cause for lost. Their late successes have turned the scale and they are now liberty mad again. The recruiting parties could not get a man no longer than last week. And now the men are coming in by the companies. Even the British were aware that this battle, regardless of how it, you know, strategically vital it was, it was not a massive near-rung battle. You know, the victory at Trenton did not actually endanger the British army to a point where it would have to seek surrender terms. But it was a victory nonetheless that showed that this battle could be fought and said, hey, we can do this if we get the men, and the men showed up in force. But think about what I just said. To many passive historians, when I talked about the event at Trenton, what's the only thing, or well, what's the most prevalent thing that you saw in your head, that you visualized? You know, this is a podcast, there's no visual cues. Was it a battle on the streets of Trenton? Was it maybe the seizure of Princeton? Or was it the painting of Washington crossing the Delaware? 
all triumphant standing at the front of the boat. For most, it was this painting. And at least for me, it was. I'll be honest. The painting was, for me, the thing I envisioned when I started researching this topic. But the war is actually far from over. We like to think that maybe, you know, if you know a little more past the Declaration of Independence, you know, maybe Washington crosses it. It's a grand you know, statement of American pride, and the war forever changes. And it did forever change. But the war is far from over. And the two shock ambushes, again, can only do so much in the grand scheme of things. General Howe of the British Army realized the plan of winning by simply showing that the British were unbeatable was no longer going to work. He remarked in a letter that, quote, I do not now see a prospect of terminating the war, but by general action, end quote. The British, as seen here, are really starting to continually roll up their sleeves. You know, they have their sleeves. They keep getting their hands deeper and deeper into this war. They're getting more and more into the mud. You know, from a few hundred men that go to Concord to more troops and some ships that come to New York, and he still hasn't called for general action yet. So for the Americans, they keep waking up a sleeping giant, only to realize the giant has never actually woken up. And when it does, it's 10 times bigger than they previously thought. Howe concluded in the same letter that, quote, we must regain possession of this country by the sword, end quote. And the British were learning really quickly how this war was going to need to be fought. But the Americans themselves were also learning. Washington, again, he might have made a terrible mistake and potentially war-ending decision to put his army in New York and in New Jersey and on Long Island, you know, put it directly in front of the British army, risking a straight-up defeat. But he got lucky. He did not pay the full consequence for that. And according to Noel Ray, quote, he would never expose his army to the risk of a major defeat by fully committing it to battle, end quote. So Washington's main Continental Army would disappear seemingly from any frontal attack or any frontal defense of the British force. But to the north, the Americans were still under pressure. Remember, Canada, that area in southern Canada, is actually still part of this war. For a major defeat at Quebec in 1775. Something I failed to mention last episode, so my apologies. But an Anglo-Hessian army came down from Canada and looked to take the Gibraltar of the north. With, quote, the greatest of ease, end quote. Oh, by the way, we refer to the Gibraltar of the north as Fort Ticonderoga something that we went over in episode two. Now, a British force was within striking distance of Albany if he could get to the fort and take it. he falls, the British forces of the New York area, you know, with General Howe, would be able to go up the Hudson and link with these Anglo-Hessian soldiers, and New England, in theory, would be totally isolated, where General Washington seemingly might be, and a lot of the pro-revolutionist you know, backing is, would be cut off. And the war again would look to be endable quickly. Again, a narrative we seem to keep hearing is that we're only one maybe small victory away from cutting off the entire war and it's over. But the Anglo-Hessian army was not moving with the pace it seems to have been on paper. The Anglo-Saxons of this Anglo-Hessian force, you know, the British soldiers, despised the German-speaking Hessians. They called them dirty, uncivilized, and they called them, you know, they barbaric almost. And the Hessians themselves were only there in the hot and muggy forest to make money for their prince. So it's pretty safe to assume that morale was tepid at best for this force. 
but linking up with his Anglo-Hessian army was not done immediately, as General Howe had his own ideas, his own plans for the summer. And his idea was to go to Philadelphia in the early summer, draw off Washington's army, take the capital, then come back to the Hudson and go to meet the Anglo-Hessian force that by then would have secured Albany. But this is like a British Schlieffen plan. Remember in World War I, the Germans had this plan. They were going to quickly smash into France, beat France, and then quickly turn their forces east and go beat the Russians. But this British, you know, Schlieffen plan of sorts was contingent on really three things. It was contingent on how moving quickly, then a successful and again, timely invasion of Philadelphia, then the Anglo-Hessian army doing their part and getting to Albany relatively quickly. Howe's plan is approved by higher-ups in England, but whether the rest of the British forces in North America knew of this plan is still contested to this date. General Burgoyne was seemingly told of it clearly. You know, there's clear signs that he was, you know, in communication with Howe, and there are people telling him that this plan was going to unfold. Yet he claims that he was never told of this plan when asked later about it. And Burgoyne was also made the co-commander of that Anglo-Hessian army coming down from Canada. So regardless of if he was just happy to be in a higher position, the, second, the fact that the second big piece of this plan was unaware, or at least maybe not on board with it in some degree, is quite shocking. How do you not know or share this plan if your whole plan is to take the war by the throat? Howe's Schlieffen plan had a bunch of other issues, though. The plan was to isolate New England and take Philadelphia, but both of these take huge hits. As cutting off New England turns into more of a metaphor when you start to think of the actual logistical and the supply reasons and the defense capabilities that you actually have. Why? Because the Hudson River has no bridges. So if anything wants to go across to New England, they have to get ferried. So if you're trying to cut off the American forces there, you'd have to try and contrive to build forts and garrisons, by the way, from scratch. So there's nothing there. They have to build up forts all along the river in garrisons. And the Americans were getting their stuff from pretty small boats. So it seemed like a really hard way to cut off the British from the Boston Harbor and from the Hudson. It doesn't look actually that attainable. Maybe more of a, again, metaphorical cutting off of New England. Furthermore, the short distance between the southern part of Lake George and Albany was actually quite difficult to pass. You know, short on a map, but long in the terms of you have to walk through some really dense forest. And again, this is another thing that the British generals just seem to overlook, maybe even neglect. But nonetheless, on June 30th, 1777, the plan is finalized, and the general order from London is given. And this sort of catches us up with the Anglo-Hessian army with its eyes on Fort Ticonderoga. With Burgoyne, with Burgoyne, with Burgoyne at the front, the fort is actually taken quite quickly. And again, with relative ease. Now, it is stated that when the King of England heard that Fort Tagandaroga had been taken by British forces, he is said to have shouted to the Queen, quote, I have beat them. I have beat all the Americans, end quote. Retrospect in history is a really funny thing. But nonetheless, Burgoyne makes a very strange decision. But 
I'm going to give him some credit. If you look at it from his eyes, the decision I'm about to explain, it maybe seems a bit more rational, but he decides it's a good idea to keep pursuing the retreating American forces into the wilderness. Literally. There weren't any roads whatsoever between the armies, so the British were literally building a road in the dense woods, and the Americans were beginning to embrace guerrilla tactics. Interesting that we always complain, and I'm not making a statement on politics, but a lot of people in America sometimes complain that when the American army goes and faces a guerrilla army, they're cowards or they're not willing to fight us straight up. But the Americans here in New York begin embracing guerrilla tactics like none other. And this is an era when armies would stand together at an agreed battlefield, at an agreed time, and fire directly into each other until one army won. And the Americans were embracing guerrilla tactics. They were knocking down big trees to get in the way of the British forces. They were taking pot shots from the forest and harassing the advancing force. All of this while the Anglo-Hessian soldiers were fainting from heat and exhaustion. But in Burgoyne's own words, quote, my army shall not retreat, end quote. And his army continued to trog due south to Albany. While this was all happening, the American forces began leaking misinformation and doing all sorts of irregular warfare. And this caused the British to send scouting parties out to investigate, oftentimes way too good to be true news, only to have soldiers who, quote, either lay on the ground or stood behind a tree, would load, aim, and fire from one tree to another, and then move forward, end quote. So they'd be shot by these guys, these Americans, who would lay down, stand behind trees, quickly shoot off their shot, and then move. And these guerrilla ambushes on these British scouting parties were so demoralizing to some that when the Mohawk fighters that had accompanied the British force, when their force got pounced on by a guerrilla ambush, they were wanting to go back to Canada. So the summer began to turn into a slow-moving disaster for Burgoyne. He went from taking Fort Ticonderoga, and it was looking really good. The King of England standing back saying, I beat all the Americans, it is over. And clearly it's not. Because again, that short distance becomes a nightmare. So this Schlieffen plan of sorts is already torched. It was mid-September, and Burgoyne had no clear victories besides Fort Ticonderoga, and was slowly being chipped away at as he trogged through dense forests and guerrilla attacks. And he began to realize this. And he begins to cover his you-know-what, and says he should be able to get it done by November or December, and he begins to sound, and again, pardon me for this analogy, but he begins to sound like Han Solo talking to Jabba the Hutt, promising to make good on his ill-fated promises of before, but to the south, Howe was actually getting off pretty well. But remember, it was contingent on three things. Howe moving quickly, Howe being successful in Philadelphia quickly, and Burgoyne getting to his objective quickly. Burgoyne, as we know, is not getting to his objective very quickly, and he's throwing off the whole timetable. Now, while General Howe had actually gotten to just south of Philadelphia, he had moved very slow. Remember, one of the things this whole plan was contingent on was General Howe moving quickly, He's actually moving pretty slow. So when he got into Philadelphia, he was hoping that General Clinton, you know, realizing that his plan was going a little too slow, General Clinton would move out of New York and go up the Hudson himself. You know, a little, a little audible play for this plan. But General Clinton had too little troops. Thus, leaving the southern part of this plan momentarily paralyzed themselves. And to the north, 
an offshoot of the Anglo-Hessian army, had been turned away by Benedict Arnold at Fort Stanwix. And thus, the Americans were now winning battles a little to the north. And the Americans were now threatening to cut off Burgoyne from his entire supply chain out of Canada. Now, this is interesting. We always talk about supply chains, and it was a big thing in my series about the Han. But the British under Burgoyne were eating British imported food, and the German soldiers remarked upon this. They were eating British bread made with British flour. They were drinking British ales. All of this was shipped from England into Canada, then moved down to the border, moved through dense forest, then given to the soldiers. So any hitch in this long supply chain would be catastrophic at least. And now the Americans after Fort Stanwix were looking to cut that off. Furthermore, the American force in front of him was getting bigger every day. Remember, recruitment was an issue. Now it is not. And the force that Burgoyne was looking at was a force under the command of Horatio Gates. And Horatio Gates' force soon outnumbered the British. So, with winter coming, uh, Game of Thrones reference for those out there, and a perpetually growing enemy and a potentially cut-off supply chain, Burgoyne, in, in blunt terms, had to make something happen. And he retreated back and moved towards Saratoga, which now has a different name. But without his Native Americans, you know, tailing alongside of him, Burgoyne was not able to receive any reliable information about the American force whatsoever. Things are beginning to look pretty dire, really. They would maybe, you know, be able to know that Horatio Gates and Ben Arnold had linked up and were in, in the same camp now, and they were not getting along, but that was never known. Nevertheless, on September 19th, 1777, American scouts found the British force at Freeman's Farm, an area owned by a loyalist, and a light skirmish broke out. Now, battle was imminent. But Gates had a trick up his sleeve thanks to a move by George Washington that happened earlier in the year. And that move was to send him a varying degree of support and sent some of his best forces from his own Continental Army. Most notably, Colonel Daniel Morgan and the newly formed Provisional Rifle Corps which comprised of roughly 500 specially selected riflemen from the states like Pennsylvania, Maryland, Virginia, and they were all chosen for their ability to shoot. And this unit, you know, later becomes known as Morgan's Riflemen. Riflemen. This entire war has been fought by musketry. But now, there's a force worth rifling. It was a rifle was an American technology to dig out grooves in the barrel, in the inside of the barrel of the gun, which allowed for the bullet to spin and keep a straighter shot. And this allowed for a new style of fighting that didn't require the Americans line up in mass in front of a British army. So as the advancing British army moved closer, Morgan places sharpshooters all around the battlefield in, you know, in ideal positions. And with a, within a few minutes... They had shot essentially every single British officer from the first advancing company, you know, taking out the head of the snake. And now, this guerrilla tactic worked in repelling this very first advancing company, but the sharpshooters were forced back to flee into the woods when a British column under Commander Frazier came from their right side. And by 1 p.m., reinforcements begin to show up from both sides. And while this was happening, and while these forces were coming in, the fighting died down a little bit. So Morgan's force moves and it regroups at another position and begin to take out more officers. And they begin to put their sights 
on British artillery units and one by one would pick off the British artillerymen and were actually able many times to go and seize the guns for themselves, but they were only to be pushed back by the next British charge. Now this battle, in a sports analogy, this battle's opened up. Both sides are taking huge shots on the attack, and it looks like it's anyone's game. Both sides are taking shots. Both sides are on the attack, and it's just anyone's to win. But by 3 p.m., the British decide to shift their plans. And the the order from the front is that we're going to go back to the supply train, tell them, look, leave 500 men to guard this. The rest come up the right flank. And it took two full hours to get this plan in place. But nonetheless, by 5 p.m., the British began to move. And they had a calculated risk of leaving their supply chain potentially more vulnerable, but it begins to pay off. And they begin to push the Americans back, but at the cost of tons of men. The Americans aren't losing that many guys, but the British are. But the British are sort of a wave, a big tsunami wave just crashing into the Americans and just trying to wither them back and beat them with force. And as the British are slogging it out, they do begin to take the upper hand. And they're pushing, and the Americans are falling back little by little. But then night falls, and the battle ends, and the Americans just disappear back into the woods. So the British are left on the field at the end of the day, so they're the victors. But they lost a shocking amount of officers, and in total 600 men for what? A pretty worthless victory on a loyalist farm. Now, Back at the British camp, there were talks to go on the offensive again the next day, but those plans were immediately stalled. So for the next week or so, Burgoyne and Clinton, who's down in New York, are in communication about how to best go about their situation. And the Americans, in the meantime, had a separate force go to Fort Ticonderoga. They got there, tried to bombard it with artillery pieces, but this was to no avail. So there's some little skirmishes happening. There's some plans trying to be made both sides, trying to, you know, wiggle into the upper hand, but no one's actually able to do it. Finally, on October 7th, 1777, Burgoyne looks to advance. This time, he wants to eye the American left flank, but the Hessian commander suggested a retreat. You know, we might have won a small battle, but why are we slogging this out? What is our game plan? We should go back, regroup, and actually hit them on a real attack, but Burgoyne was having none of it, and he wanted to go look it wasn't fully sure. it wasn't a full plan to go attack the American left, but he wanted to go see if it was vulnerable for an attack. So he takes an escort and took Fraser's advanced corps with light troops and the 24th foot on the right, and he took the combined British grenadiers on the left, and a force drawn all from the German regiments in the army in the center. He brought 10 cannons in total, and they left their camp around 10.30 a.m. You know, they move about just under a mile. They show up, they see the Americans, and they say, okay, good, stop. We're going to set up our shop. But the spot where they decide to set up their artillery, while it's advantageous to shoot from, you know, shoot the cannons from, it left them dangerously exposed on their left, their own left, because there's woods. But nevertheless, the British artillery begins to fire at around 2.15 onto the American forces, which were under Commander Poor. But unlike his name, his forces actually hold firm, rendering the barrage completely ineffective. The British instigated this battle, and already things were not going as planned. They had the upper hand. They had the opportunity to seize the initiative, but the British grenadiers under Major Ackland then begin a bayonet charge from the right. But the Americans don't immediately fire. Instead, they wait, and they wait, 
and they wait until the British charge gets unbelievably close, like see the whites of their eyes close, and then they unleash. They shoot the charge to shreds, wounding Ackland badly, injuring a shocking number of soldiers, you know, crippling this line. And then the Americans themselves advanced and took the artillery for themselves, took the Grenadier's line and completely jumped on the right side. Now on the left, things also began to fall apart for the British. Remember, Burgoyne decided to set up shop close to the woods. And again, seemingly forgetting the sharpshooting ability that the Americans possessed. Who else would go to those woods but Morgan sharpshooters? And they take up positions along the woods and they begin to obliterate Canadian and remaining native forces and began engaging the British regulars. Sniper shots rung out and took out everyone. But then there's the famous shots. They claim they're by a Kentuckian who was born in Ireland. In the This is a 19th century fabrication. So I don't, no one really knows who fired these shots. But there were two shots that missed and one that hit. And they hit Commander Fraser. Remember, he was the same commander from in September who had pushed the Morgans back initially in that Battle of Freeman's Farms. But a British general is shot by an American sniper. Allegedly, he's in a tree. He takes two shots, misses left, misses right. On the third shot, you know, third time's the charm, mortally wounds Fraser. The downing of a British commander, plus the fact that there was an arrival of even more American soldiers, which actually made the American force much bigger than the British, seemingly breaks these regulars' will. And as I mention it a lot, and something you hear a lot in history and maybe a lot from other podcasts, is that in battles, especially battles back in time, when generals or kings or whatever you have, when they're actually at the battle and when they go down, their army almost always disintegrates with their fall. And the British regulars begin a disorderly and a really hectic retreat back to their entrenchments. So the left is taken, the right falls apart. And in fact, Burgoyne himself is nearly killed by sharpshooters and narrowly escapes death. Heck, his horse was shot, his hat was shot, and his waistcoat were shot. You know, literally taking the hat off his head and shooting it right through his waistcoat. But within just an hour, the British had lost 400 men and 60% of their artillery pieces. Sounds a lot. It was six of the 10 were captured by the Americans, but nonetheless, it is a complete failure so far. But then, someone who wasn't supposed to be on the field shows up. Benedict Arnold, who had fallen out with Horatio Gates, who, by the way, by then was presumably hammered, rode into action on his horse. Now, whether Gates knew this or told him to do this, or, or told him not to even, is not totally clear. But he led a force alongside a different force led by Poor crash into the 300 Hessians that are outside the British camp in the center. But ahead of the camp, there were two redoubts, which were under the control of Bremen and Balclares. Balclares? I'm sorry for my pronunciation. Again, I'm not a linguist. But Balclares redoubt holds the initial American push. So one of the redoubts holds firm. So that means the eyes turn on Bremen's position. And this was in Arnold's scopes. Knowing that they had just lost, you know, not lost, but their initial surge had been pushed back, Arnold rides, again, presumably completely hammered, between the lines, by the way, somehow doesn't get hurt at all, and leads a force through the gap between the two readouts, turns around and exposes Bremen's rear, and then pounced. 
The American forces kill Brayman. The readout is taken. And finally, Arnold is reached by a major sent by Horatio Gates to get his you-know-what back to camp. But in the retaking of Brayman's readout, Arnold was eventually hit. His horse was shot, he was shot in the leg, and he fell off the horse and fell into the same leg, causing in total one broken leg. But an admirable, you know, potentially mythological event transpires while he's on the field. And the taking of this readout exposes the British camp completely. And now some Hessians try to retake the readout, you know, Brayman's old readout, but this is to no avail. And this is because they're led by a guide as night is falling, and they are led, you know, to go to the readout and take it, but they're really just accidentally led to the American line, and they were all taken. In total, in the two battles, you know, the one from September at Freeman's Farm and the one now, Burgoyne had lost 1,000 men and was now outnumbered by what is believed to be a ratio of about three to one. He finally has no choice but to retreat and he goes 10 miles back. However, when he goes back, he's only to be surrounded. But on October 17, 1777, Burgoyne finally surrenders. This British Schlieffen plan of the North was completely torched. This was an unprecedented victory for the Americans, too. This wasn't just a quick victory that frustrated the British, you know, maybe showed that, ha-ha, you're not going to beat us by showing you're invincible because maybe you're beatable every now and then. This victory utterly destroyed their current war plans, and it took the British entirely off the front foot. The victory was also so big that once word of it reached France, King Louis and the French decided to agree to enter into alliance negotiations with the Americans, something that will come to full fruition later, but something that's importance cannot be overstated. But while we just focused in the North for pretty much the entire summer, it's time to draw our eyes back to General Howe and his push to Philadelphia. So remember how he wanted to go in early summer and move quickly? He doesn't. Nonetheless, he moves 15,000 troops in late August at the northern end of the Chesapeake Bay. You know, he's about 55 miles southwest of Philadelphia. And General, you know, General Washington positioned 11,000 men between the two armies, not engaging in an open battle, but he's you know, sort of saying, you're not going to take Philadelphia. But... Nonetheless, Howe goes around and outflanks him, drives back Washington at the Battle of Brandywine on September 11, 1777, and Washington himself ends up suffering a thousand casualties, while the British only lose half that number. But the Continental Congress see the British Army coming. After Brandywine, it is clear that Philadelphia is going to be retaken, and the Continental Congress just picks up shop and moves. They relocated to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, then later to York, Pennsylvania, and they keep moving around. And the British and Revolutionary forces sort of maneuver around each other west of Philadelphia for the next couple days. There's some minor encounters, uh, such as there was, you know, the abortive Battle of the Clouds and the so-called uh, Pauli Massacre. There's some things that happened, but on September 26th, how finally outmaneuvers Washington's army, and marches into Philadelphia, completely unopposed. But capture of the rebel capital city did not bring the end to the rebellion as the British hoped it would. Now, in 18th century warfare, it was normal for the side who captured the opposing, you know, nation's capital city won the war. Like a game of chess. You take the king, it's over. But the war obviously is not over. And this is because of the unconventional warfare tactics for the rebels at that time. 
was wasn't a real country. It wasn't a real capital. It just was a, you know, in this time, Philadelphia was just a place where they all met. You know, there was no logistic, not a lot of logistical buildings there. There wasn't, you know, the three letter agency buildings, you know, that all populate DC and all the defense stuff. No, this was, there was a building called Independence Hall where they all met and signed the Declaration of Independence, but they could just pick up all their stuff and move. And that's exactly what they did. So Howe's plan to go take Philadelphia happened too late. He wins a couple of battles, but he gets there and it has real no strategic importance when he could have just marched up the Hudson to begin with. Burgoyne has completely surrendered and is sent back to England. All those troops are captured and held. And Clinton doesn't have enough troops to move north either. So all three phases of this completely fell apart. But winter was beginning to come. And back then, winter meant the war would come to a screeching halt. And Washington had chosen to set up winter camp. And the place he chose was at Valley Forge in Pennsylvania. Now that's a place that I feel like most Americans have heard of at some point. And right before he set up camp, though, he angrily wrote to Congress because it came to his attention that there were some in the Continental Congress that were plotting against him on the grounds of his performance. You know, he hadn't really won a lot. He gave up Philadelphia. You know, he had Trenton, which is great, but he had lost pretty much everything else. You know, but this letter he wrote got his allies in the Continental Congress to rally behind him. But again, this feeds into the myth. You know, was Washington really the perfect general? He almost got outed. But nonetheless... The winter hits. Now, at Valley Forge, experts estimate that there were about 1,300 to 1,600 structures built. And by the time everything was set up, 12,000 people were there, about 10,000 soldiers and 2,000 civilians. And immediately, the issue of feeding what essentially was a full-size colonial city became a nightmare. Roughly 1,500 of the horses would die in this winter just from starvation alone. Furthermore, what now becomes the fourth largest population area, you know, maybe you can call it a city, but, but nonetheless was not built for cleanliness. These tightly packed and hastily built hut villages, you know, lived in by soldiers, you know, by the way, who were often without coats or were without shoes or without jackets or whatnot, caused rampant disease. And they have to hold out for the winter. But by the end of the winter, Nearly 2,000 people had died. But Washington stayed with his troops, and he was able to stop a full morale meltdown. But Washington also had ordered the mass inoculation of the inhabitants to smallpox, which saved who knows how many lives. And get this, this actually is very interesting. This was the first large-scale state-sponsored inoculation ever. Pretty neat, right? But by the end of the winter, the French had agreed and had signed on as allies. And on March 17th, the British had declared war on the French, forever changing this war from just a, you know, a revolution in their own colony to a potentially world war. And it changes the course of the war, but also the course of world history. But a little earlier, on February 23rd, a man named von Steuben arrived at the American camp. Steuben, who was German or Prussian, could not speak much English. But nonetheless, he picked 120 men from various regiments and decided to form an honor guard for George Washington. And he also used these soldiers to demonstrate their own military training to the rest of the troops. You know, it's pretty hard to train 10,000 men by yourself when all these soldiers have different needs and different purposes and different, you know, skill levels and whatnot. So these men turned into, you know, their own personal trainers. 
at the regimental and brigade levels. And interestingly, Steuben had an eccentric personality, and he had a sort of a mystique around him. He always walked around in full military dress, and he twice a day trained the soldiers who, at this point, were themselves lacking in proper clothing. But he could only speak a small amount of English. So he would write the drills in German, the military, you know, which is the military language of Europe. Germany could put out, as I said, 150,000-man armies on the snap of a finger. So German is the military language of Europe. And you know, his own secretary then translated the drills from German to French. And then a secretary for Washington would translate the French translation into English. So it goes from German to French, then to English. And they did this every single night. So that in the morning, Washington himself would command his soldiers. It wouldn't be stupid muttering through some broken English. He told Washington to do it. And Washington would then be the one to command his soldiers in the morning. And Colonel Alexander Hamilton and General Nathan Green were, you know, were in huge help in assisting Steuben in drafting a training program for the American Army. And also, he's an interesting character because his willingness to work with these you know, undressed men. You know, undressed. They're not naked. But they're not wearing the proper military clothes. And this man is from the military heart of Europe. He's working with these guys who had never done anything. But this guy uses profanity in several different languages. So while he might be hard, he's training them. The fact that he wants to work with them and the fact that he's kind of one of the guys. You know, he swears a lot. Cusses in different languages. And it made him popular amongst the soldiers. Now, to say this in the story, it is reported that the reason von Steuben wasn't in Prussia is because he'd been outed for being gay. And it's sort of stated that he maybe met his lover, who was Captain Benjamin Walker, at this camp. Now, back then, being gay was definitely not something that was accepted in society. But in the American you know, Revolution, I think that this was, would have been easily overlooked for the sake of the fact that they're getting a fantastic military you know, genius. Now, it's alleged that he exclaimed over Walker, quote, if I had seen an angel from heaven... I should not have more rejoiced, quote. And Walker becomes, you know, Steuben's aide-de-camp. But Steuben ends up introducing this system of progressive training, beginning with the school of the soldier, with and without guns and arms, and then going through the school of the regiment. This, you know, this corrected an old policy that the Americans have of assigning personnel to regiments. Each company commander was made responsible for the training of the new men, but the actual instruction was done by sergeants, specifically selected for being the, the, you know, the best obtainable ones. So he comes in and he starts to get the army ready. And this is interesting because in the beginning of the war, the U.S. used the bayonets mostly as a cooking skewer or a tool rather than a fighting instrument. And Steuben said, what is going on here? And he comes again. It'd be like if you were the coach of the greatest sports team in the world and you showed up at the you know, Bad News Bears team and you'd be like, what is going on? And Steuben introduces effective bayonet charges, which end up becoming crucial because there's, there will be times in the future when the Americans would fight without bullets. Now, he actually ends up writing this all down and he prepared a book called Regulations for the Order and Discipline of the Troops of the United States, commonly known as the Blue Book. And it was the basis of all the training that he devised at Valley Forge. And this will end up getting used by the United States Army until the Mexican-American War of 1846. 
And this book is actually in Chicago, where I'm from. And you can go to the Pritzker Military Institute and see this. It's really, really cool. And you can see this piece of history. So after, if you live in Chicago, well, you just go and go to Google, look up The Blue Book by Von Steuben. And you can go and physically see it. And that's what I'm talking about. You can actually see the history and realize it's not just a story. You can touch it, feel it, imagine yourself doing it. It's crazy. But we move on. So Von Steuben comes at the beginning of 1778. And the Americans had beaten, you know, by the start of this year, going from the previous year, the Americans had beaten the northern forces of the British, gotten, you know, beaten the Anglo-Hessian army. They'd gotten full support of a contested number one world superpower in the form of the French. You know, they're not the number one. They could be, you know, they lost to the British. They could be the second, but there's, there's you know, contention for them to be the number one world superpower at the time. And they not only survived winter, which looked to be a dire situation, but they came out of it almost unrecognizably strong and put together. And the British will realize this. By the beginnings of May in 1778, the British, again, realize that the Americans are coming out a little stronger. But a big piece to this is that the French have just joined the war. The British now have about two-thirds of their entire standing army on North America. And they will soon quickly lower this to less than one-third. When General Clinton realizes that the French are in the war, he needed to send men to protect New York, but also Florida, and aims to ship 3,000 men off by sea. But the Americans see this, and they begin to harass the British. They burn bridges, block roads, and make life hell, as if the hot and muggy weather wasn't enough. The British then use the Hessians as human pack mules and make them carry most of the, you know, the munitions and the goods. And it's just like what happened in New York in the prior year. And Hessians begin dropping like flies from exhaustion. But General Washington, too, realizes this opportunity. And he wants to try out his new toy. And his toy is in the form of an actual trained military force. But General Lee, who was maybe more experienced than Washington, advises him to wait you know, for further deployments, and he didn't want to commit the army against the famous, you know, British regulars. We've tried this, it has failed, and he, again, has more influence over the officers as well. And while Washington maybe deferred to Lee a bunch previously in the war, and even though a war council voted to not engage the enemy in an all-out assault, Washington realizes that now they are better equipped, better trained, and almost the same number of troops. And while they could not afford to lose a major engagement, Washington takes executive control of the situation, and in spite of Lee, Washington determines that the British were vulnerable for attack. As they were spread out across the entire state with their baggage trains, and he finally takes his force out of Valley Forge and into New Jersey in pursuit. Now, Lee changes his mind. You know, he says a mission of this size should you know, be to his command. And Washington says, okay, you didn't want it, but you want to take command, and he allows him to take over command of the advanced corps. And it adds the advanced corps of the brigades of Wayne and Poor, who we remember from Saratoga, for a total of 6,000 men. And the attack was to, you know, go after the rear of the British column. And Washington will support them with the main army. And on June 28th, General Dickinson, who was commanding New Jersey militiamen, reports that he is finally engaged with the British. And the British seem to be falling back. But Lee moves forward slowly, 
little too cautiously because he has failed to gather data on the actual position of the British. There's no radar. There's no drones. There's no immediate communication. So he's beginning to hear these conflicting reports that the British are moving out or that they are maybe preparing for attack. And he's really, you know, gets really annoyed with the lack of intelligence about the enemy. And now the British were both falling back, you know, moving their baggage, but also preparing for an attack with the rear guard. But Lee couldn't get reports that clearly stated what was actually happening, which was that. Now, he finally gets a picture of where the enemy is. And he orders for his units to move out left and right to cut off the rear guard of the enemy and capture them. He has units march out to the flanks, but then receive no orders. They go to the flanks and sit there and go, wait, what are we going to do? Now, Wayne in the center is told to feint an attack. Lee wants to hold the rear guard while he encircles them, but generals don't know this plan, so Lee has started to take more control than he was supposed to. And this battle starts to engage, and it's kind of a crapshoot. The plans aren't really going as thought, but during the battle, one of the famous things that many people know about, or maybe don't, really, but a woman today known as Molly Pitcher, who was a camp follower, and her job was to bring water to the troops from a nearby spring, took over her husband's place at a cannon when he was wounded. Under fire and losing men, this artillery unit was going to fall back until she volunteered to take his place. Now, she bravely serves, and she served the cannon in her husband's place. Now, this is a story, again, where women begin to show up. And I know, I said in the first episode, I would look to get more women into this show. And it's been tough. This is a very patriarchal society. But this is a story of when people sort of really in a good way, begin to drink the Kool-Aid. People really begin to believe that this is something they need to fight for. And this is not just an upper echelon battle of Bostonians looking for freedom over some taxes. This is now common folk. With, you know, In other words, never serve in the military this time, joining in. And now they're joining in, and they're making it a little better. And she took the cannon spot, left the cannon, you know, it was able... Now her showing up allows the cannon to stay put and allows the Americans in that position to remain where they were. And the battle continues, and although Washington's overall force you know, did not destroy the British column as had planned, they had inflicted serious damage to the British. And again, kind of like Trenton and kind of like Saratoga, this proves that the Americans can stand against the regulars. But in this case, it shows that the Americans were able to do this with no surprise. They didn't have to jump and seize the initiative. They didn't have to hide behind trees. They stood there like trained soldiers of the day and stood up against the British. Now, the British successfully defended their baggage, but they were not able to defeat the Americans in open battle. Man, has that changed since 1775. Now, since the Americans were able to hold the field of battle, they claim victory. Now, in reality, the battle is more like a draw or, you know, even a British victory because the American goal was to destroy the baggage train and to break the rear guard. And the British were just defending the baggage train, which they did. So technically, it's their victory. They did what their goal was, was to defend the baggage train. But the Americans hold the field. So in their minds, it's a victory. And in the British minds, it's kind of a victory. But the British still are demoralized. They travel only nine miles. The next day, they'll cover 24 so the Americans do a great job of showing themselves that they are able to fight right up against the British. And also, 
this would end up being the last time the two major armies would clash like this in the entire war. So with the French in the war, things begin to change. Again. And the British have had a horrible time in the northern parts of the United States. It has gone terribly. It has gone sideways, really. The whole failures of Burgoyne, Howe's complete, you know, lackluster taking of Philadelphia, Clinton's failure to, you know, get his troops out safely to go defend Florida. And the British begin to look to change strategies. Remember, the initial strategy was crush the rebellion quickly. And then the strategy was take their leaders and their guns before this, you know, before this revolution even starts. And then it was, you know, break them at Bunker Hill. And then the strategy sort of, you know, up the ante a little bit. And the strategy became, okay, we're going to take all their major cities. And that didn't work. And then it became, you know, let's just beat them in open conflict. And that has become a disaster. And they look at themselves and say, well, we have to take troops out of this continent because France might engage in a world war again, just like the Seven Years' War. And they, you know, the involvement of the French can't be overstated how important it is that they are now in this war. Because what the French begin to offer is a diversion. And the French, you know, in it for their own reasons, who knows? I'm not, I'm not going to get into that this episode. But the British begin to look to utilize a now smaller force against the Americans. So this big force was going pretty sideways. Now they have a smaller force. What are they going to do? And they decide to turn their attention to the south and the southern colonies. How many battles in this podcast have I mentioned so far that have taken place in the south? The answer is zero. And the British begin to turn their eyes away from the north. And they have a smaller number of troops. And so their idea is to go to the south. Because in their eyes... The southern colonies have more loyalists, which actually is true. The southern colonies, they had to get a Virginian general in position to show them that, you know, even that this wasn't, and the Americans had to get a Virginian general to show the southern colonies that they were also in this fight, and there's tons of issues with the south, but the British looked to capitalize on the increasing number of loyalists that they believe are in the south. And they look to turn their attention to the South and have these, you know, a less number of troops in the South, but to let the American loyalists help them fight this war. It won't be a British regular army moving around and crushing different American forces. But for this summer that happens, the British begin to shuffle their deck a little bit. The British begin to move their forces around and a conflict doesn't seem to occur until December 29th of 1778. So it's kind of a, kind of a lull period in the war. As the British are reorganizing their army, the Americans are moving around. Now, finally, on December 29th, 1778, something happens. And there's an American general named Robert Howe, not to be confused with Howe of the Northeast. The British General Howe wants out of this conflict, and he gets out of it. Now, Robert Howe in the United States is in Savannah, Georgia. And he has a force of 850 men, and the British, under a new leader, this force, under Colonel Archibald Campbell, has a force of 3,100. And they go to take the southern port city of Savannah. And Clinton now is the head of the British military in North America. You know, Henry Clinton was sort of the side guy that had a couple good ideas about New York and Bunker Hill. Both were ignored. But he is told that Georgia and South Carolina have large loyalist populations. So he wants to open up a theater attack 
against George Washington. So they send 8,500 troops to Savannah, Georgia. And the troops you know, from New York under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Campbell arrive at TB Island on December 23rd, 1778. And they are, by the way, a month late. And some other forces show up and together they march on Savannah. Now, Campbell quickly gains control of the city at the cost of only seven men and 17 wounded. He ends up taking 450 prisoners and there are at least 83 dead from the American forces. And Howe's forces retreat, and the retreat ends at Perrysburg, South Carolina. He, only three, he had only 342 men left, less than half of his original army. Now, the American General Howe would receive much of the blame for this disaster. A lot of Howe's getting blamed for stuff. However, a court-martial is actually put against the American Howe, but he's exonerated in court after the event. But this marks the beginning of the British push into the South. The British have to lower their men. And to end this episode out, sort of set the stage for the next episode and where we are. The British have to lower their manpower. They can't fight in the Northeast anymore. They don't have the army to win by the sword. The French are involved now. The French Navy begins to show up. They can't do what their original plan was. And the British begin to start surprising the South, trying to you know, rally up the loyalists to make up for the lost men that have now been shipped out to other parts of the world. And in the next episode, we will talk about the rest of the war, which is fought almost entirely in the southern colonies. Now, this is known as the Southern Strategy. You know, not to be confused with presidential campaigning efforts, this is known as the Southern Strategy because, well, the British begin to go after the South. And Washington's, you know, Continental Army will never really face an open battle against the British again. But the war, again, is not over. So next episode will pick up at the end of 1778 after the taking of Savannah. And we will dive into the Southern strategy in the later years of the war. Who's going to win? I'm just kidding. We know who ends up winning, but nonetheless, it is interesting. And we need to look at it for the context of this great country. And thank you so much for listening to episode three of Patriot Rising. Check back in soon, and I mean soon. The next episode will not take a month to get done. Do not worry. I'll get it done probably within the next week or so. So, thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.